Hello and welcome to Ian's Research Club, a new A&M podcast. I'm your host, Ian T. In each episode, I speak with guests from the visual arts community, as well as creative individuals from adjacent industries. Hosting this podcast is an extension of the long-form interviews I've been conducting, and a way of capturing the personal voice. I hope you find the conversations generative and enjoyable, as I know I will. Today I'm speaking with Kathleen Dietzig and Xu Fangzi. Kathleen is a Singaporean researcher and curator. Her research focuses on exhibition histories of Southeast Asia and unpacks the enduring legacies and networks of the Cold War in cultural production. Fangzi is a lecturer at the Department of Communications and New Media at the NUS um, National, Singapore, National University of Singapore. Apart from her academic work, she has also been a curator and has worked with many artists and institutions in the last decade. Fangzi is also an, ex- an experienced editor and translator. I'm speaking with the both of them as they have recently co-curated the exhibition Art Histories of a Forever War, Modernism Between Space and Home, at the Taipei Fine Art Museum. They are the first curators I've had on the show and I'm really excited to hear more about this curatorial collaboration of theirs. So let's jump right in. Kat and Fangzi, welcome to the club. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Um, I'd like to start the conversation by asking how the two of you met. I think Fang invited me to a publication and you yes. translated an essay I wrote about right. the f- what is claimed to be the first Southeast Asia art exhibition in 1957 in Manila by the AP. And I you translated that into Mandarin. Mm. And that's how we met. Mm. And this is how many years ago now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's 2015. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So 2015, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, uh, that's right. a publication, uh, in, an independent publication in Taiwan called uh, Art Criticism in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And that was a particular issue, um, maybe interesting about Southeast Asia. And I just can thought about other people than Catherine's recent publication on Southeast mm-hmm. of now. <laughs> so I think that's, that's how it yeah. all started. Yeah, yeah, that's how it started. That's true, yeah. Yeah, through translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how did you end up working together on this show that's on view at the Taipei Fine Arts Museum? Well, Fang invited me, so mm. yeah, it was an invitation that you got from the museum, and so. then you invited me to work with you on it. So, mm. so Taipei Fine Arts Museum, um, in the previous X directors, uh, Lim, Professor Limpin's directorship of the museum, uh, she had this great interest on developing collection-based exhibition. And then the X invitation came to me, I think 2000, early 2019, and I just thought I'm always a big fan of uh, Catherine's work, so <laughs> I thought we I should get the, use utilize this opportunity um, to work on something. And because both of us, our research uh, dissertation research, PhD dissertation research, are both on Cold War, although different um, kind of field of study. Uh, mine is more on film, Catherine is obvious art history, uh, exhibition history. Yeah, so I thought, yeah, why don't we put our head together and do something with this collection in Taipei? Yeah. And for people who are perhaps not familiar with their museum, what's, what sort of works do they collect or how is their, what's their collection kind of made up of? Mm. 
So the museum. Do you want to say a few words about where the museum located? We can. Yeah. Why yeah. don't you Why don't you talk about that? Why don't you talk about that, and I will I will talk about the collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that so I was so privileged and so grateful for Fang's uh, invitation to you know spend time with Fang to think through a collection, but also to think about this particular period in time because. It, it's interesting. One of the things that Fang told me about Taipei Fine Art Museum when we first started working together was that it is actually sited on the former um, command center for the United States, and so the museum has been built on the site that was really what you would consider your quintessential Cold War military installation. And the museum is still part of the museum, one of the facade. Um, I mean, you can see from Song Tu's window where mm-hmm. we install Song Tu's work. It's 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 still facing um, former military radio station. Radio station. <laughs> so it's quite uncanny. Uh, you look at where the museum is located, and then and how much of that history is just inflected in that physical space. I mean, it's interesting to think about like. How is a museum built on mm. a former military site? Mm. You know that would have had a lot of meaning to the populace. Would have been something that is known. What is the ideology almost behind that? And like, does that history seep into more than just like physical registers? Right. Right. So a part of the reason they chosen that particular uh, location is. Um, Early eighties, the government, uh, Republic of China government in Taiwan, um, it have multiple uh, infrastructure development, and somehow art and culture became one of it. So in the early nineteen eighty, there's a comedy put together to you know develop the museum, identifying who is the architect for the museum. Uh, what kind of collection item? Which uh, Liu Guozhong is part of it. Lots of artists we display are part of it. Um, to envision um, a museum that is dedicated for housing uh, modern artwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, modern artwork. Very specifically because they have Palace National Palace Museum not too far from where Taipei Museum is located. Uh, so you talk about the development of the collection. I was very early identified. It need to be about modern work. Um, but not just presenting a great ta- talent from Taiwan or Republic of China uh, in Taiwan at the time, but also need to have international outlook. So that's the that's the premise. That's the premise, and that was being written down in one of the the open call for inviting uh, entries mm. to compete. Who's you know whose proposal to build up, which architect got the bit, you know, to their their vision can be put be be realized as the as the architecture of the museum. Yeah, so that's why those those words were actually captured in lots of uh, document and competition. So I think that's where the earlier framework for the collection was built up. And in terms of how the collection came about. Uh, there are early acquisition, but there are also all, lots of donation from artists individual. Mm-hmm. So for certain artists, um, like the body of work was very complete. 
for especially for the modern artists we're looking at for in the exhibition. So which in terms of time period it's like sixties to seventies all the way to eighties. Yeah. And delving into the exhibition, the first section of the show brings together uh, modern works that not only celebrate the moon landing but also register a kind of perspectival shift in Chinese modern art. Mm-hmm. So, what were the kind of implications of this shift? Mm-hmm. Well, there's many ways in which we sort of approach this, um, and I'm going to respond to your question just more generally mm-hmm. around the idea of perspectival shift mm-hmm. and the moon landing. And I and I don't think that we have, as art historians or as institutions, examined what the moon landing actually did in terms of a technological vision that gets imprinted onto uh, cultural production, but also what the moon landing ideologically meant within human history. So the moon landing of 1969 was really the first global televised event. You know, satellites were beaming a feed from, you know, the first step on the moon to, to sort of multiple locations across the world. So if you had a television set and, you know, you were able to receive the satellite feed, you, in principle, would be able to watch it at the same time, right? Some people, not all nations had television sets at the moment, Mm -hmm. at that moment, so they would hear it on the radio, or if they were not in the right time zone, Mm -hmm. they would see recordings of it. So in a sense, this was really um, a really interesting visual technological moment because there was a common register across humanity to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. They said that, I think there was... um, there was some research done at the time that three out of five people in the world actually watched it at the same time, you know? So the moon landing is not only this amazing event because man takes his first step on the moon and we see Earth, obviously, through the space rays and the technologies that lead to the moon landing, we get to see space from, um, sorry, we get to see Earth from outer space, right? Which is a whole different perspective on humanity, a whole different perspective on our environment and how we see the world. Um, but it's also this other thing where there is for that happens beyond that perspective shift is that you're able to actually imagine humanity on a different scale. So what does the moon landing as a perspective shift mean? First of all, it is this new technological vision, right, of seeing Earth as the complete Earth from outer space, right? Which is one perspective. But another perspective that happens is this sort of collective humanism that comes out of the technology of global tele- a global televised event. Okay, so this fundamentally shifts many different perspectives, not just Chinese modern art, but you see this re- register within modern art across the world, and. You know, I would say that at some point we would have to do a study of, let's say, how this registers differently across Southeast Asia based on how different nations receive this event. But, but to answer your question, how is it registered? You see it literally in the, some of the paintings in the work in relation to how images of the Earth and the perspective of, the mo- of seeing Earth from, from the moon gets imprinted on, for example, Yu Guosong's sort of um, space paintings. Right, you see other things happen within the artworks, which is a certain kind of palette that comes out of this sort of televised vision. There's somehow pastels, you know, and there's a whole different la- visual language that comes out of this moment. 
Um, and you see this actually in other regional artworks as well, but I'll leave Fang to answer the specific questions about Chinese modern art. Mm. So I think for to follow up with <coughs> Kate's, Catherine's response um, to focusing on your question regarding Chinese modern art, I think we pr- probably want to be more specific here. It's about Chinese modern art in Taiwan. So this moment of moon landing, uh, the long stretching from the 60s, you know, space, uh, space race, space travel, uh, to 70s, the moon landing, um, it, it's kind of in conjuncture with uh, more Chinese modern art movement in Taiwan, which consists of multiple exhibition and lots of debate, people debating what is Chinese modernism on newspapers, uh, serious debates between artists themselves, between philosophers. So it was a very interesting time. Um, so the reason has to do with majority of the artists we recognize in the exhibition representing the Chinese modern art movement in Taiwan. They were born in mainland China uh, during the either before the civil war. Uh, between the communists and Kuomintang, and they came to Taiwan um, following the defeats of the Kuomintang and retreat to Taiwan. So there is a kind of identity uh, formation in this journey need to be re-articulated. Uh, for the government itself, um, for the KMT government in Taiwan, obvious there's also a demand uh, internally and externally to represent the free face of China. So what is exactly is this Chineseness? <laughs> and it has to be a new Chineseness, right? You need to make sure there's a departure. Then in conjunction with the new visual moment of moon landing, and you, you see lots of um, those uh, artwork, they are referencing uh, either oracle form uh, or this new visual uh, form that has to do with moon. Mm-hmm. And moon has been such a, a long beloved subject throughout the kind of the cultural genealogy of Chineseness, right? You have uh, Chang'e, um, the mythology, and you have all, all of that, right? However, it was in this particular time uh, within the exhibition. We, I think we should also mention the Shi Qi, the Moon Eulogy, the Moon Eulogy. So unlike other work, they have come into the picture with a more celebratory of uh, humanity. Interesting enough, the Shi Qi, in collaboration with his wife, who is a very important modernist poet called Gu Yue. Um, they collaborate on this set of prints called Moon Eulogy and right at the beginning of the first print it mentioned about how the moon landing, the terrorized moment of moon landing is, what should you put it? it um, Chang'e was damned, the minute of that landing. Which was an, it's a very interesting thing because the translation says she dies. Yeah. Ah. But then in English it's that she's the end. So, and, and it's a beautiful piece because it's a very romantic poem actually. Mm. Um, that kind of, it talks about longing, it, it talks about change. Um, you know, it could be applied to more things than the moon landing, but what it was was really this categorical shift, right, of almost a scientific vision of man stepping 
stepping on the moon and then mythology and the mysticism of Chang'e is kind the of being muse, from the muse, of, <laughs> the, muse. Uh, the, mu- <laughs> the muse of Chinese poets is <laughs> over it's over you know that, that era is over was kind of what the poem was kind of getting at yeah so I think for us for us this is not only a perspectral shift it also a resemblance of a particular debate, multiple fa- the debate in multiple facets about the modernism in conjunction with the notion of Chinese-ness. Right. Because even in Taiwan, there's all these various uh, different <laughs> response to the event of moon landing. So it be- it, it's, it's an excellent, I think, exemplified um, cases. cases for us to compare unpack the complexity of yeah, Chinese-ness, yeah, right? And also who, lay, who lays claim to modernism, mm. right? Because in a sense, even the lament of the loss of Chang'e's mysticism mm. is a lament of maybe a Western modernism coming in and displacing mm. a certain kind of... You know, so, so these stakes of whose modernism, what form of modernism, what are the political ideologies tied to modernism, mm. um, you know, and how that factors into a, a larger civilization view mm. becomes something that is sort of really important in that first section of, you know, we yes. talk about the moon landing and we're talking about so much of um, the, the sort of technological impact and shifts and pers- you know perspective is one element of it mm. but what really comes out of the artworks and the material is really the different perspectives mm. and the different um, really coming to grips with the stakes of what it means to be modern and who's modern mm. and and why that is important at this specific time and why what we should be asking is not what the moon landing did to impact mm. what's happening, but why the moon landing was such a rich and fecund moment that artists were mining it. Mm. You know, like so maybe we almost inverse that question, and it might be a little more productive to even start to think about uh, why the aesthetics and the philosophies, the philosophies around um, the moon landing, were ones that were also tied towards a reckoning of. Chinese traditional mm. um, iconography because um, it's really modernism that's responding to that that iconography and taking parts of it. Mm. So I, I, I do think it represents in multiple level. Politically speaking, you have you have the government's encouragement and pursuit for representing that Chineseness, right? So you do cultural facility-wise, uh, government policy-wise, there's this encouragement. Uh, there's also a multiple cultural campaign has been launched by Kennedy government uh, during that period. But I think um, epistemologically speaking, you do have this generation of artists who train in classical Chinese. Mm. So the kind of uh, cosmology uh, that embody in art, in, in, in traditional Chinese landscape painting, had a very different uh, subject-object proposition. And that has been brought into uh, the, the finding as an inspiration of finding a new languages for Chinese-ness in art, right? Uh, so there's multiple level to to think about um, this generation of artists mm-hmm. and how they contribute to the conceptual um, kind of engagement with a scientific, so-called scientific and military uh, events globally. Yeah. 
And in addition to these um, modernist classic works from the museum's permanent collection, this section of the exhibition also includes um, design objects and also mm -hmm. like archival materials from various collections. Mm -hmm. So um, what do these objects and materials say about the visual culture about the period? Thank you for this question because I think like this is a really nice bridge question to what we've been talking to about you know, who owns modernism and how modernism is um, reconstituted through types of discourses and and that there is a sense of pastiche, right? So why we chose these design objects, so the exhibition Art Histories of Forever War is really looking at the legacies of modernism that comes out of a Cold War context. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, we look at the space race and we focus on the moon landing because the moon landing becomes a very rich moment that artists are quite inspired by. But there's this other moment, which is around the sort of, it's a nation building project, it's an economic project, but it's the construction of the modern home. Mm -hmm. And specifically, actually, objects within the modern home. So art becomes an object that is part of the modern home, but it also is, it's the slippages between craft and art at this moment are actually um, much more unwieldy and less distinct than the way we treat them today. So in a sense, also, why do we put design objects in archival material and is to recuperate a kind of historical context that has been lost to contemporary imagination, mm -hmm. right? And that's really the sort of approach we took when we dealt with archival material and what one would consider non-art or non-collection-based material, was really recuperating the kinds of imaginations and the kinds of contexts that a contemporary audience would not be familiar with. So some of the things we showed were really looking at the legacy of design programs in which Taiwanese artists and craftsmen participated in the construction of a global modern home under the auspices of um, the American State Department and American cultural, uh, the American Cultural Cold War initiatives, um, which was really, on one hand, a development program. It was really about developing economies and looking for material that can be exported. So most of the times, this was like craft material, furniture, handbags, whatever, right? And um, what what we looked at was an episode specifically with the American designer Russell Wright being working within Taiwan and actually interestingly putting Taiwan in the vector of Southeast Asia uh, and Southeast Asian craft um, and how he worked with artists like Yen Shui Long, for example, to produce craft that would be sold to internationally, first of all, um, internationally, but also specifically within the American market. So craft like lamps or mm. artworks or whatever that would go into the modern home that the 1950s housewife or 1950s modern person mm. would buy in their way of decorating their house. So what what's interesting about that is there is a performance of Chinese-ness, right? And a performance of Chinese modernity that happens in this process, but one that is filtered through what are the desires of an international market. So, I mean, if you can see the narrative that I'm setting up for you also is that the first section really looks at the moon landing and there's always a sense of internationalism towards this, like human, um, humanism and collectivism. In the same way, the, de the design narrative around the construction of the home also plays to that. Um, so we have that layer across the entire exhibition which deals with an international modernism moment that's coming out of that. But what we're very invested in is Taiwan is the lens onto that. Mm. And so 
when we are looking even with the archival material, we're looking at how um, Taiwan becomes a, mom uh, a space and a moment of cultural production that fits into this other history that's unfolding internationally. Mm. Um, does that answer your question? In some ways, I feel like that te it tells you a lot about. I, I'm answering your question about what it tells you about the visual culture mm -hmm. of that period. Yeah. So we like to say that it's very national, right? But actually, it's a very international moment in which the modern is being constituted not just in the West, mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. say, or, or in the U.S. or in Europe, or it's not being constituted purely by the consumer. Also, it's being constituted by the craftsmen. It's actually this huge nego the visual culture of this moment is one of a negotiation, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I think, in a sense, methodologically speaking, it, it is obvious and take uh, not just art history, but also thinking about it as a kind of cultural materialist uh, approach to historicize mm. um, the moment, right? The period. Um, and in a sense, what we will attempt to do is also give lived experiences of the Cold War. So we have to recognize if we speak Cold War uh, to the majority of our uh, general public, uh, they will still associate Cold War with, you know, two superpower try to. Um, <laughs> shoot nuclear to each other, but that's not true, right? That's, that, that's not, there's just one side of the story. It, it is a very interesting and distinct historical processes that formulate what we are right now. So I think for us, uh, by engaging with design events, I think you're thinking about um, craft, you're also thinking about the Asian artists in crystal. Mm -hmm. You're also thinking about Wang Dahong, uh, one of the leading modern architects who built so many monumental buildings in Taiwan. You're, you're also thinking about those multiple elements of design, right? So I think for Wang Dahong, it resembles, uh, it, it is a continuation of that seeking of Chinese-ness in through modernist languages. You also have uh, Asian authors in crystal uh, that can be understood as this transition from uh, finding a home, finding a house, finding a new home after you left the motherland, which is the earlier cosmology moment. Uh, but then you're thinking about how American cons consumers <laughs> have very much adopted this mentality of the kind of co-orientalism and mm. facilitate facilitate uh, the, the 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 circuit of culture, the circuit of cultural object as a uh, facility through commodification processes, and then you have the craftsmanship moment, uh, the formation of craft. Uh, the Taiwan craft design, right, is the, the institutionalization of the craftsmanship in Taiwan, facilitate and in collaboration with the international politics of revitalization plan that America launched towards Southeast Asia uh, and East Asia as a way to stabilize the Cold War front line, right, mm -hmm. uh, in relation to the communists. So those are those are both, uh, that's why I use the term cultural materialism, because it is a signification processes that has been 
enable through multiple facets that we, Kate and I, uh, Catherine and I, unpack through these various of, uh, examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think speaking about um, kind of Taiwan in relation to Southeast Asia, mm. the show also features um, contemporary art projects by artists such as Erica Tan, Maria Taniguchi, and Yi Lan, just to name a few. Mm. And I think um, perhaps in sp- speaking to the, the three of them as examples, um, craft is also a, a, an aspect that's picked up upon. So what was the narrative you wanted to explore with the inclusion of these works by artists from Southeast Asia and beyond? I think the big thing really was when you look, it's the show functions with mo- multiple levels, right? Because at the heart of the show is really this question about legacy, about the endurance of certain logics um, that come out of world geopolitics, that come out of, but also that world geopolitics, that, that history is not just written from the top down, but really actually written from the bottom up. So you have multiple, um, what we would consider, I think, conflicting positionalities throughout the exhibition. And this was really something that we wanted to create because the narrative is complicated. History is not linear in many ways, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so the inclusion of these artists and the contemporary artists in general was really as a way of making evident and also uh, making apparent what these enduring legacies are because these legacies come up in their practices but it also comes up in their research. The way that we approach this selection of artists it really came out from having an expand looking at the exhibition as an expanded as a site of expanded conversation. The artists in their own right with their individual works and their individual research have investments in unpacking the Cold War along different um, uh, along different lines of thought. Um, Ilan, for example, most definitely deals with the context of Borneo, which itself is um, one that lives <laughs> in, I think, definitely a lot of the major issues that happened during the Cold War are ones that come out of the that that play, continue to play with play with in relation to national identity, in relation to history, things that come up across her entire practice, right? Um, Erica's work actually deals a lot with um, her mother, Feitan, who was an artist here in Singapore, as well as other artists like Georgia Chen, Kim Lim, Dora Gadeen, and it really deals with this larger national narratives of claiming specific female artists, right? And, and then you have Maria Taniguchi's work, which deals with literally, we have the... Um, we have the video work, which is about the jeepney, which obviously that's so self-evident in yeah. relation to how that deals with Cold War legacies and so forth, and des- design legacies that come on the Cold War, as well as like her um, brick painting series, which we can go back to the issues of labor, these sort of issues of artist labor, the issues of conceptualism that that run core actually to that come out of this Cold War period that we're think that we're working with, so. Our approach with the artists was that they would be other research voices, right? And their artworks would be manifestations and logics that complicated and made sense of this moment in the way of pointing to the contemporary living histories, right? Of what we were talking about. It kind of made sense in in a way. What we hoped was that when someone encountered and walked through the exhibition, they were looking at these modern artworks, they were looking at 
design objects, these archival materials, and then they were looking at these contemporary works, that it was an argument made almost through ambience that one would walk away with the sense of literally the density of this history mm -hmm. that exists in our contemporary everyday lives that we kind of take for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a lot of people, for example, don't realize that, you know, the contemporary boardroom that we have, right, is actually a construct that comes out of uh, World War II. I mean, the design for the boardroom was one that is tied to the OSS and, and it was all about being able to share information quickly within a wartime context. And so, you know, like that little factoid in a way kind of is a way that you can maybe understand our curatorial strategy in terms of bringing in contemporary artists was really to have more discussion partners, but also in a sense, their deep research and the manifestation of artistic process of making, right, also really makes material this this question of legacy. Next question is for you specifically, because I know you've been working on translation projects for a number of years now. So were there any ideas or terminology from this exhibition that you found particularly difficult to translate from Mandarin to English or vice versa? I think it's the title of the <laughs> exhibition, because uh, I think you went through a lot of titles. We, went through the, we, we came up with the English title fairly fast. Yeah, I think we start with the English title. Yeah, but we also came up with the English title in a way that we thought it would be easy to translate to Mandarin. Which is not the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It was not. laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, for me, uh, for me, title is the most difficult yeah. one. And another aspect but that's also because be you're an exceptional translator who like <laughs> knows like the poetics of the language and so there were many times when we were going through the translation you would focus on the nuanced meanings of specific yeah yeah there was a certain moment i went because it's about English translating yeah. into Chinese, there's no indexical translation. Like, mm -hmm. this is something never really exists in my practice. I would try to find the best expression of the essence of what this English text would try mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to communicate with people, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a certain moment I was like, dive into Yijing <laughs> yeah. to either to capture that effervescentness of this forever war, right? Mm -hmm. And then when we proudly proposed the title to um, our wonderful team in Taipei, no one really got a point. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah, so I mean, it, who, who, whoever understands Chinese will see uh, the Chinese title only capture part of the English title. So I think there are deliberate um, spaces mm -hmm. or deliberate space making. I mean, space and space race, right? <laughs> um, space making that we are creating uh, in translation. Mm -hmm. So if you're bilingual, you read our curatorial text. Uh, for sure, it's not um, like apple to apple translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's more. Uh, um, apple to fermented cheese kind of translation that we are trying to achieve uh, through this exhibition. Yeah, um, yeah. Title is the most difficult thing to translate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because I think we never were happy with the title. 
like never truly happy and it was not really a situation it was just uh, it was always that even in English the title was one that we were reaching to already thinking about translation so we felt it was already a simplification especially the subtitle so I mean this is it's one of these things right that it's interesting because we were effectively working from a bilingual position from the get-go <laughs> which led to a very <laughs> I think this is the hardest title ever <laughs> and in multiple conversations it was yeah I think um, it took us half a year yeah it took us half a year to synthesize it down to that and I should say that you know we came up with it because we wanted a title that was open, that was translatable but then we realized how untranslatable it was but it, and it wasn't because let's say like we didn't know what we were doing curatorially and we were like guffing about but it was really like we wanted a term that could capture the meaning of the legacies but also be um, be very clear about the incisive lens we were constructing into history right and we were very aware that these moments and especially when we talk about the cold war now it's such a loaded political mm. term even um you know i mean cold war histories <laughs> go up into different governmental reviews across the world right not to mention where we are right um and so we wanted something that was open enough but had integrity to what we were directly pointing to because the, frankly there is not enough known about this period you know we've done a lot of work on it but the reading over this period especially in our current geopolitical landscape is so hot um, and so biased to whoever is speaking at that moment right and there's a certain urgency to it and i'll just point out like when we opened the exhibition i had a fantastic discussion with a diplomat who came to the show who was literally not convinced about the forever war terminology because you have to remember we opened around the time that the u.s was pulling out of afghanistan and a forever war is tony blair's term towards the war in the middle east and i remember having this conversation and fang and i actually discussed this in great depth and and there is a certain globality to this condition right um that we were okay with that with that um with that looseness of the term with that openness of the term that someone would pick up oh this is also a reference to, yeah you know millies and and so so forth and i mean i had a conversation with her about well you know this term can mean many different things in different contexts but we're open to that reading as well because we're talking about a global the process of globalization mm. that comes out in the 50s 60s and becomes something else in the 70s and 80s but has its continuing legacies to the to the present um the last thing i would just say towards that is that i mean one of the texts that really inspired us was that insurgent aesthetics book yes um, which is really about queer aesthetics um, that come out of um, the Middle East, the conflicts in the Middle East. Um, and let me, I, do you recall the scholar's name? I'm so sorry, I'm missing it right now. Yes, um, um, I think I have this here. Yes. Um, is Kapadia Renan, Renan Kapadia. Uh, the book title is Insurgent Aesthetic, Security and Queer Life of the forever yeah. war. Yeah. So there is a discursive formation and exercise in intellectual domain 
on this first of the forever war, yeah. and we never really want to you know shy away from yeah. this because for us. Uh, we're also looking at a kind of formation and articulation of biopolitics yeah. uh, in aesthetic life. So we thought, yeah, we definitely want to capture this yeah. uh, in our title and yeah. therefore to keep it loose in yeah. when it comes to translation became one of our main targets. So whoever in Chinese context read this, we really hope they can also make an association to this uh, forever war uh, global discourse um, that came out. Yeah. Uh, so in a sense, it also allows even it, even just a ten translation. I think this is also represent our attempt mm -hmm. to historicize yeah. the globalization moment we are in right now yeah. with a longer historical trajectory that most of us did yeah. not expect it. Mm. And I mean, I think one last thing about that that came into the translation process was also the discussion of this other term, the everyday war. Because at that, and Fang and I spent some time, um, Ian, if you're familiar with some of my writing around Song Chu's war, which I wrote a year or two before this exhibition, I can't recall now, for Song Chu's monograph. Yeah, or mm -hmm. anyway. For Song Chu's monograph, which looks at her, and she's in the exhibition. Mm -hmm. Um, which looks at her examination of um, World War II and the Cold War in her practice and how the technologies of psychological warfare that come out of Vietnam are ones that are also tied to her interest in relation to minimalism, in relation to American modernism. And so that the idea that, you know, the persistence of the Cold War, the Vietnam War, are these kinds of psychological remakings of the mind or in art, in a sort of everyday war context, was also something that we were thinking about. Mm. Because we were thinking about artists who were who were invested in this kind of legacies and and how these legacies were playing out in the contemporary and were ones that we were still living with. So I mean, that title, how do you even begin to translate that? You see what I mean? With all these different ideas that come into it discursively, it was... Uh, painful. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean the, but exciting the, and rich. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean the kind of struggle we went through yeah. also uh, shows the important uh, respect um, yeah. towards contest, the kind of radical contextualization and exhibition making should be. Yeah. Uh, since we are, I'm, I'm Taiwanese but I've been away for quite a while and there is not just kind of literary translation, right? <laughs> it's also curatorial practice, design language, uh, exhibition making, uh, styles, all of that, right? So <laughs> this conversation about translation and this struggle uh, to find the right um, correlation <laughs> between Mandarin and Chinese, uh, between Mandarin and English, uh, has very much is is bended towards almost every aspect yeah, of yeah. this whole journey yeah, of yeah. making this show happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my next question um, perhaps would has to do perhaps more with like your personal experiences. And I like to ask, uh, um, what do you think um, makes like curatorial collaborations work? Like how would you how, how do you go about perhaps framing this relationship mm -hmm. or framing the research? And how do you even think about um, perhaps the what you would like to get out of these sort of collaborations? 
I think this entire discussion we just had on the translation of the title kind of like encapsulates <laughs> I mean I find that very productive like that's you know um, not to jump the gun but I feel like our, our current wrestling we're trying to make sense for you of the title and how we came to that title and the level of discussions and the convergences of discourses that we tried to bring together and in working together is kind of like a testament to like how interesting curatorial collaborations can be and how much richer they are than I would say solo curating. I mean, I'm increasingly as a curator who makes, who made, who's made exhibitions by herself, um, I'm actually just far more interested in curatorial collaborations nowadays. I, I find it a much more rewarding process personally because intellectually um, it's, it gives so much more and um, the, the thing about working with someone else is it demands a kind of giving of time that sometimes when we work on our own shows we rush towards where we're much more goal driven. And I think it's much easier to do, um, it's much more honest to do research collaboratively, in my opinion. Because in a sense, yes, research is a very solo-driven, personal, in you know, writing, you write by yourself kind of thing, what they always say. But I actually think research done together and in conversation and in concert with another person actually produces much more interesting knowledge. Mm. And I think the last thing I will just add to that before I give this over to Fung to respond to is that, um, and I know that you may have expressed interest before in my other curatorial practice, or my other curatorial projects, which are um, collaboratively driven, is that increasingly I find that if we're talking about Southeast Asia, or we're talking about regional identities, or we're talking about humanisms of, at a certain large scale register, it's it's impossible, impossible to do it by yourself as a curator. Um, impossible to do it by yourself as a curator because you're not a specialist in everything. And the reality is that you can choose to be general about it and then things are shallow undertakings. But I think that especially in the era that we live in where everything is accessible through Wikipedia or through large open source softwares or um, or through not open source softwares, open source platforms where one can teach oneself very easily, going deep is actually needed. And no one I don't think you can do these large register broad surveys by yourself and go deep at the same time. Mm. So I for me, curatorial collaboration is necessary. It's not even a question of would you like to do that, but if you want to be able to speak to certain larger ideas that require multiple perspectives um, that go beyond being a pure ideologue, right, or performance of whatever, <laughs> put you know identitarian positionality. You want to go beyond that. Um, you can't not collaborate. That's personally like how I'm increasingly feeling as I'm dealing with, especially as someone who deals with historical material. Mm. I think simply put, curatorial collaboration managed to draw more dialectical tensions, complexities, and at the meantime, um, in the practicing level, um, curatorial is also a thought processes with an addressee and someone you need to hold accountable which is public 
Um, I think through collaboration, like you always have, like Catherine is always there, right? Uh, to make sure that this passage of sentences <laughs> is uh, decipherable <laughs> by everyone, right? I mean, as simple as that, towards um, other possibilities that we might not be able to recognize uh, by walking along. But also, I think the beauty of bringing um, expertise um, in conversation with each other, and that's always more interesting. Uh, than just working alone. <laughs> yeah, and I think curatorial is fundamentally collaborative. I mean, not just because there's two curators here, but it's, you are... You're always working with a team. You're always working with a team, you know? Like, filmmaking is yeah. never just about director, especially when we think about the is always male, male director, right? So um, I think it's also a, a kind of stand that I think Catherine and I will both recognize like uh, exhibition making and curatorial the curatorial is fundamentally collaborated mm-hmm. by its nature yeah i think perhaps the last point i'd like to um, bring up would be to um, point out a show point out the show that you have here at um, at nus museum mm. which um Fangzi have curated and it's titled fistful of colors and it's um connected to the show in Taipei in a sense that it's also another collection-based um, exhibition. And I'm wondering what are the kind of um, opportunities and challenges you see with curating such collection-based shows where the curator has to work with a given set of material as, and as well as the kind of legacy or the framework of an institution. Mm, mm. Uh, when I, uh, the, 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 thank you for bringing introduce uh, this exhibition is uh, the full title of the exhibition is uh, Fistful of Color, Moments of Chinese Cosmopolitanism, right? Um, the show is, um, yeah, it's our collection, it's the NUS Museum's Li Guangcheng collection. Um, people, uh, um, people in Singapore, uh, friends in Singapore will probably refer to this as Chinese collection. So uh, it has its own history. So whether we are working like with Catherine and we're working with the collection in Taipei or I'm the Taiwanese working with a collection that it's part of the Singaporean history, I think we are always looking at a particular dynamic which is how do you respond to how do you draw a narrative uh, from uh, the relationship between institutional history and individuals' curatorial agency, mm-hmm. right? And when I when I produced the show for NUS Museum, I I, I, I I was still the curator here, so I am here to continue a particular curatorial genealogy and, and, and demand, which NUS Museum is a university museum. Uh, the collection itself, um, by its name, it's the Guangcheng Collection. Um, it's it's life. The, the the social life of the collection of the Guangxian is actually from Nanyang University. Yeah? So it's before NTU. It's NTU, you have Nanyang University. And that's where it come about. So uh, for me, um, I, I am always interested in um, doing research with historical um, particular historical legacy, or I am prepared to work to develop and understand and unpacking the kind of historical legacies, uh, the kind of formulating 
the present, right? So um, I actually don't see challenges. For me, it's all opportunities. <laughs> uh, yes, there's challenges. There's challenges of um, I'm not from that generation. I'm not a Singaporean. So again, going back to the previous question on collaboration. Um, yes, I'm I am the curator of this show, but in fact, it's a accumulation of research have done by more than just me um, in this museum. It's also so many previous curators have accumulating archival research material, uh, curatorial notes. So this is a collection-based exhibition that has very much also paid tribute to whoever has been part of this journey uh, to showcase its unique if I'm exercising my curatorial agency, I think my rule there is also to uh, make sure whoever has been part of the journey build up this collection or safeguarding or being a custodian of this collection and their experiences have been this collective enunciation of, of, of this exhibition in a US museum, mm -hmm. which is also a museum that dedicate for educational purposes pedagogical driven type of uh, SSM of, you know, um, exhibition. So yeah, um, I, I see great opportunities <laughs> and it has been a great journey because while working on Fistful of Color, I'm also working with Catherine on um, our history of forever war. So I do see then the whole experiences kind of, you know, understanding the Chinese-ness in mm -hmm. Singapore is through, through uh, understand the Chinese-ness, uh, sign up sphere in Southeast Asia through the Chinese collection in the US Museum and have a comparative reference framework towards my understanding of um, the Chinese-ness that has been housed by Tommy Farah Museum. So it's quite an interesting journey in the past, I would say two years, right? Two years, roughly two years, uh, putting both shows kind of simultaneously together, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely see some kind of thematic strands that kind of mm. overlap between these two shows. Mm. And perhaps um, just to close off, do you have perhaps anything that um, listeners and readers could look forward oh, to? Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess in terms of upcoming projects, Fang and I will be moderating two sessions for Art and Market during Singapore Art Week. I'm looking forward to Fang's talk on congeniality of the Global South. Which sounds really exciting. Um, I'll be I, doing I, something on I think art and blockchain. Speak on behalf of you, okay? <laughs> Since you, you are moderating the other, uh, the other uh, panel on um, art and blockchain. On blockchain. <laughs> so looking forward to see everyone uh, via Zoom or in person uh, during Art Week. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, more information on the program will be found on art, on the Art and Market website. <laughs> thank you so much for <laughs> highlighting um, our program, and um, thank you for sharing about the exhibition and your experiences. Thank you so much. Thank for you so much. Thank you for listening to Ian's Research Club, an Art and Market podcast. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to stay updated when new episodes drop. You can find the podcast by searching Ian's Research Club on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Do rate and review us as it helps others discover the show. For images of the artworks and exhibitions discussed, visit the ANM website. Our URL is www.artandmarket.net. 
Follow AM on Instagram and Facebook for more specialist content on Southeast Asian art. Till next time, bye!